parts. The first section comes from Daniel uh, chapter 7. It's on page 890 of the Pew Bibles. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the man and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision, at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. The horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and the mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white as wool, and his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language we worshipped him. His, dom his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Our reading continues in the Gospel of Mark, um, chapter 13, verse 24. And that's on page 
1,018 in our pew Bibles. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Here ends our reading. Well, uh, thank you, Bruce, and uh, morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well. It's great to be together. Uh, Penny's already prayed, so we will get uh, straight underway. And uh, as you're uh, opening your Bibles back up to Daniel chapter 7, which I know you're all doing, I'm going to start by making a confession, one that means some of you will not want to speak to me ever again, perhaps. One that will impair our fellowship maybe forever. But here goes. I just don't like Lord of the Rings. I'm not into it. I find it boring. There, there it goes. Uh, it's out in the open. <sighs> Feels really good to have it out there. I know um, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I know he's a Christian. I know he was good mates with C.S. Lewis. I've heard the whole story as an allegory for the Christian faith, but I just, I just cannot get into it. I have the same relationship to Lord of the Rings that many of you probably have to test cricket, which I actually love. And I remember watching the first film uh, at uh, the Odeon Theatre at Swiss Cottage in North London, and I was just thinking, man, when will this ever, ever end? And there's this scene in the film where the hobbits, you know, the little hairy guys, they go on this journey down a river. It looks like this, I think. And I was hoping that at that point in the film, like a team of US Marines would like emerge from the water and like take them all out just so it would all be over and I could finally go home. So I'm not into Lord of the Rings. And actually, I preached this last week at eight o'clock and very secret, secretly, like two or three of the eight o'clockers came up to me afterwards and said, I'm not into it either. So there are many of us. But I know that when you hear that phrase, or even when you see our lettering, The Return of the King, Lord of the Rings is immediately what jumps to mind. I know also that when many of us hear the term Advent, what jumps to mind is the first coming of Jesus as a baby into our world. But actually the idea of Advent is really about the return of Jesus. It is about the return of the King. And that's why we've called our series The Return of the King, not Christmas the sequel. Nathan. <laughs> now Advent, it's derived from a, uh, a Latin word, Adventus. That means coming. And that's kind of like a translation of a Greek word, which means parousia. And in the New Testament, that refers to Jesus' return. By the 6th century, uh, Roman Christians had connected this uh, season of Advent to the coming of Christ, but they, of course, didn't mean his first arrival as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, but his second coming on the clouds of heaven as the judge of the world. And it wasn't, in fact, until the Middle Ages that the Advent season was linked to Christ's first coming at Christmas. And so really this season of Advent symbolises the present situation of us, uh, Christ's church, in these last days as God's people wait for the return of Christ in glory to usher in his eternal kingdom. 
Uh, and if you think about it, uh, we as the church are in a very similar situation to the nation of Israel at the end of the Old Testament. We're in exile. We're waiting, hoping in prayerful expectation for the coming of the Messiah. And so at this time of year, we look back upon first, uh, Christ's first coming in some celebration. But at the same time, we look forward in eager anticipation to the coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. And so this Advent, we're going to kind of look into the return of Christ, the return of the King, as we prepare ourselves for Christmas Day. And uh, today we are going to look at those two passages that were read to us, Daniel chapter 7 and Mark 13, that focus on this figure called the Son of Man in in, uh, what is called apocalyptic language or literature. And so we'll be looking at page 890, Daniel chapter 7. And you'll see from chapter 7, verse 1, that this apocalyptic language, vivid sort of stuff, comes to us from a dream or a vision that Daniel has. Now, I don't know if you dream much. uh, Some people don't think they dream much at all. I think I dream all the time. Um, And I quite enjoy dreams, even though they very often make no sense um, once you wake up, or they would actually be terrifying if they were real. Does that describe your dreams? So reasonably often I'll wake up and I'll say to Carolyn, man, I had this mad dream last night. And she'll say, well, what was it about? And I'll say, well, it was something like this. I was walking along to Queenscliff Beach down the main strip of Las Vegas. When suddenly this giant two-headed tortoise started chasing me and I looked around and it was breathing fire and it was purple and my high school maths teacher was riding it alongside Kim Jong-un. And just as it was about to catch me, Matt Damon turned up in a speedboat and said, get in. And so I did. And even as you're saying it, you realize this sounds completely ridiculous. But in your dream, it all made sense at the time, didn't it? So Daniel's having a dream in in, uh, Daniel chapter 7. It's equally vivid, graphic, uh, frightening really. But unlike most of the dreams that we have, this one makes sense. And unlike most of our dreams, God has got a point to make. And you can tell that because the second half of Daniel chapter 7 contains the interpretation. Well, let's track it very quickly and see what the point is. In verse 2, have a look. It's a picture of chaos. The winds are churning up the great sea, that is the Mediterranean, which was almost symbolic of chaos with its deadly swirling waters. Then in verse 3, four beasts appear from the sea, each of them different from the others. And you find later on in verse 17 that these beasts represent four human kingdoms dating from around about Daniel's time. But in fact, they represent human kingdoms across all days because not that much really changes in human history. The fourth beast in verse 7 looks particularly terrifying with its iron teeth devouring everything in its path. I mean, it's not a purple tortoise, right? This is actually scary. Ten horns symbolizing great strength, great power. And then in verse 8, there's a a little horn that's speaking boastful words. And so you have here a picture of complete chaos, of worldly kings and kingdoms running amok, seemingly railing against God and waging war against his people without restraint. And as this horrifying vision is taking place, Daniel sees another equally true reality but it couldn't be any more different have a look in verse 9 a great heavenly court opens for business and it's a picture of calm and order 
and dignity and majesty in contrast to the chaos that has gone before. And God, the great ancient of days, takes his seat, the seat of judgment. And so we have this vision of God in control, judging those who do not rule under his kingly counsel, punishing those kings who exercise beastly or brutish rule. Truth is, and many of us think this all the time, that the nations and the kingdoms and the empires of the world seem to be independent. Right? They just seem to be out of control, doing their own thing. And God might seem to be absent or even asleep. But he is, in fact, reigning from heaven, exercising judgment over the empires of the world. And that's really what the, the book of Daniel is all about. But we're not actually studying the book of Daniel, are we? We're, we're thinking about the return of Jesus. And so as the fourth beast continues to mouth off, even as the other beasts, that is the other kingdoms, have been stripped of their power because all human kingdoms fall, there emerges one final figure. Did you notice that? One like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, who could this be? And we naturally go, well, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. But I say, well, why don't you read Daniel in its own right? Because this one appears to be a human figure. You go back to verse 4, there was one like a lion. Verse 5, there was one like a bear. Verse 6, there was one like a leopard. But this figure is one like a son of man. That is human in form and appearance. Not a beastly one with brutish rule. He is one who rules God's world in God's way under the overarching counsel of God just as mankind was supposed to do as God's image bearers way back from Genesis 1. But if you look at this figure in Daniel 7, he's not a mere human being. He's also a heavenly one for he comes on the clouds of heaven, doesn't he? And he boldly approaches the Ancient of Days the eternal and almighty God. And he is given glory and authority and power and a kingdom that will last forever, unlike all the human kingdoms of the world. You see, we have a picture here of the Son of Man ruling. And there are all kinds of terrifying things in this vision, but at its very center, friends, is a promise of an eternal kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that will never pass away, replacing all the kingdoms of the world with their brutality and their arrogance. And God has given this kingdom to a heavenly yet human figure, one in the image of God who ruled like humanity was meant to rule under the reign of God. It's given to one like a son of man. Now, I think the fortunes of Christians in society kind of waxes and wanes, doesn't it? Sometimes, like at the end of Acts 2, Christians enjoy the favour of all the surrounding people. Many times down the centuries, Christians have been violently persecuted. And much of the time, I guess it's somewhere in between. We're probably more pitied than we are punched. We're probably more mocked than we are murdered. And I think that's where we are today in large part. And I think that means we need not to have an ungainly fear of those who are around us, of those who rule over us, even if it should turn ugly for us, because there is a heavenly court from which God executes judgment on the nations which exceed their limits, and he has given the rule of his eternal kingdom to one like a son of man. 
But secondly for today, this son of man, he does not remain up there in the heavenly court presiding over God's eternal kingdom that will never pass away. The truth is he will return again on the clouds of heaven to take us to be with him. And that's what we learn from Mark chapter 13. So I'll give you a second to open to Mark 13. It's on page 1018, 1018. And if you were to read the whole chapter of Mark 13, uh, you discover that Jesus is speaking. It's not Daniel dreaming anymore, but he's once again, uh, Jesus is speaking with an apocalyptic tone of voice. Uh, once again, it's vivid, graphic, it's frightening. It's composed for people who, again, are in a time of trial. And again, it reminds them that history moves in these kind of regular patterns, these regular waves of kingdoms rising in power and arrogance and often railing against the people of God. And again, it reminds them that God will burst into human history definitively to wind everything up. Now, I think it is about this time of year where we start to write lists, don't we, of all those things that must be done before Christmas. I don't know about you, but December 25 seems to be kind of an apocalyptic endpoint all of its own, don't you think? kind of a date that you just can't see beyond. And to deal with that, we write lists of things that must be done and things that must be purchased just so we can make it through that singular day. Top of the list, choose whose house to have Christmas Day at. Uh, would be more convenient at our place, but the young nieces and nephews always trash the joint. Could go to theirs, but that means travel. Okay, ours it is. Tick. Bonbons. Don't forget to buy bonbons. What the heck are bonbons? No one knows. Bonbons tick. Uh, order prawns to be picked up at uh, 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve. Probably been sitting in cold storage for two weeks, but uh, ordered. Correct. Uh, buy cheap presents for the young nieces and nephews. After all, they can't tell the difference and they're going to trash the place anyway. More expensive presents for older kids. I think uh, my mum's list, the first five things are buy completely unnecessary additional Christmas decorations for Scott because I know he loves them. I think that's her love language. It's like my anti-love language is getting Christmas decorations from my mum. So there's always lots of preparations to be made, lots of things to be done before we get to the big day, December 25. Friends, I wonder, in contrast, if you realise that according to Mark chapter 13, nothing else needs to happen before Jesus returns, before one like a son of man comes on the clouds of heaven, taking us to share with him in an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. Not a single thing remains. It's all been done. There is no list. He could come at any time. Well, let's see how this plays out in Mark chapter 13. Uh, in that chapter, the immediate question before Jesus and his disciples is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. They're standing near it. They remark that it looks pretty magic. But Jesus predicts in alarming, arresting, apocalyptic language that this holiest place for the Old Testament people of God is going to be desecrated and then it's going to be destroyed. And if you were one of those early disciples of Jesus with your Jewish background, that was unimaginable. But Jesus says quite plainly, oh yeah, it's going to happen. Uh, have a look, Mark chapter 13, verse 2. You see all these great buildings? No one stone will be left upon another. Every one is going to be thrown down. 
everyone. Unimaginable. Later in verse 14, he says, uh, you will see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. And most uh, historians and scholars think Jesus is referring to the time when uh, the Roman Emperor Titus led his officials into the most holy place of the temple. That is where the Jewish high priest was only allowed to go and then only once per year because it was where the presence of God dwelt, very holy place. And so Caesar Titus not just went in there with his men, he then brought in the Roman standards, the Roman banners and sacrifice to gods from inside that place. It happened on August 30, AD 70. Okay, The destruction of the temple is a matter of history. You can read about it in the history books. Uh, famous artists have depicted pictures of it like this one, which is just another illustration, isn't it? That whether you're Daniel in the 6th century BC, whether you're people in Jesus' time, whether you're alive today, there will always be and there always have been beastly empires and kings ruling without regard to God and treating his people brutishly. And uh, Mark records this conversation about the destruction of the temple and its desecration to remind us really that nothing else has to happen before Jesus returns before the Son of Man comes on the clouds. Have a read with me in uh, from verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And so you see there in verse 24, Jesus is talking about a time after the destruction of the temple. Following that distress, God will finally wrap up history. The basic elements of the universe, the sun, the moon, and the stars will drop out of the sky. The Son of Man will come on the clouds with power and glory. We ask ourselves the question, who is this Son of Man? And again, I appeal to you to say, not just Jesus, but remember that we are talking about that very same person from the book of Daniel, the human figure who ruled God's world in God's way as the image of God like humanity was always supposed to, not in beastly ways like human kingdoms and empires have tended to. But he's not just a human figure, he's also a heavenly figure who was proximate to the great ancient of days, like right next to God Almighty. He is the one who was given the rule of God's eternal kingdom that will never pass away. The Son of Man is coming on the clouds to gather his people, his elect, as we are called here, but it just means all those who trust in Jesus, to take us to be with him so that we might share in his eternal kingdom, which is typified by power and glory and splendor. And friends, according to Jesus, the return of this king, the Son of Man, could happen at any time. Everything is in place for his return. Nothing else needs to happen before it takes place. Therefore, preparing yourself for his return should be at the very top of your Christmas to-do list. If you were to read the whole chapter, you would be struck by the number of times Jesus tells his disciples to watch, to be on guard uh, have a look at verse 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. False Christs will appear before the return of Jesus. Verse 9, be on your guard. 
you'll be handed over to councils and governments and be persecuted. Be on your guard, verse 23. The temple will be desecrated. You'll see that abomination that causes desolation, the raising of the Roman standard there in the most holy place of the temple. Verse 33, be on your guard. Verse 35, therefore keep watch. Verse 37, therefore what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Now let's just ask ourselves the question, what of these things that Jesus predicted before his return is yet to take place? Any of them? Have false Christs and false prophets appeared? Well, yes, they have. Have Christians been handed over to local and national authorities? Have they been flogged, imprisoned or worse? Yes, they have. And yes, they still are today. Has the temple been desecrated and destroyed? Well, yes, in AD 70, as a matter of history, you can see the paintings. So nothing that Jesus predicted still needs to take place other than his return. Everything is in place. The king is ready to return. The son of man is primed to come on the clouds of heaven to gather up his people. And uh, folks often think the, the real question is when? When is this going to take place? But of course, even in Mark 13, the answer is we don't know. And sometimes folks will say to us, how very convenient for you Christians. How decidedly inconvenient I think it is. Because it means that we have to be on our guard and watchful at all times, doesn't it? And so the last question we need to answer is not when will this happen. The last question to ask is, are we ready for his return? Are we primed for the Son of Man to come on the clouds? What a penetrating question to ask amidst all the flurry of Christmas preparations and celebrations. But it is actually the question that Jesus goes on to at the end of Mark 13. If you read verse 32 there, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on your guard, be alert. Uh, or verse 36, therefore keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Because Jesus, the Son of Man, can return at any time for everything is in place for that to happen, our job is to be ready. That's our first kind of duty or to use Jesus' words, keep watch, be on guard. Now, friends, I don't think that means setting up um, like a little post on your balcony facing the ocean uh, through the early evening, midnight, when the rooster crows or at dawn, that is the kind of the four watches which Roman soldiers were rostered on to keep. I don't think it means we scour the newspaper or the internet looking for secret signs of his arrival. I think what it means is that we need to live a life that is ready and prepared for his return. I think it means we need to have our spiritual affairs in order rather than being perpetually distracted by less important things. So if you have not yet turned and trusted in Jesus, in his great work of living amongst us, then dying for us to pay the penalty our sins deserve before rising triumphantly from the grave to conquer death itself, can I respectfully urge you to not delay in taking that step? If you need to find out more, find out more. If you have questions, seek your answers in haste. 
I, for myself, am not a gambling man, but even if I were, it's too big an issue to bank on leaving it until later on in life. For who knows how long any of us have. And if you have turned and trusted in Jesus, I wonder if you would describe yourself as ready, on guard, or whether you really find yourself metaphorically sleeping on your watch. I reckon if you gave some of your hard-earned to our hard-working missionaries in the Commitment Day appeal, I reckon that's a sign that you're on watch. I think if you turn up to church in the first place, but more importantly, you turn up ready to be changed uh, or ready to encourage another person, I think that's a positive sign that you're keeping watch. If in your work you're thinking of how to work in a way that you would be happy for the returning Jesus to discover, I think that's a positive sign that you're keeping watch. I think if in your parenting you're just as concerned that your young one knows the Lord Jesus as you are that they develop their talents and their abilities and their friendships, I think that's a positive sign that you're keeping watch. I think in our marriages, if we're keen to talk with our spouses, not just about all the stuff that must have to happen, but actually talk with them, to know them and to push one another on in godliness and obedience and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think that's a good sign that we're keeping watch. If in whatever ways we serve Jesus, we do it wholeheartedly without grumbling, I think that's a good sign that we are on guard. I think if we love the people of God, the new temple where God resides, now that that old one in Jerusalem is no more, that again is a good sign that you're keeping watch, which is exactly what we need to be doing. Friends, one like a son of man was born among us and he walked among us, an earthly figure in the image of God who carried himself in God's way on God's earth and yet he was a heavenly figure too who's been given all authority by God himself and he will come again on the clouds of heaven to take his people to be with him. We really ought to be ready, don't you think? It could, after all, happen at any time, the return of this king. We are going to proclaim the return of Jesus right now by celebrating the Lord's Supper. I'm going to hand over to Nathan who's going to lead us in that.